how many renovations have you done in Kansas City now? And what type of renovations do you guys typically do? In 2018, I decided to go legit and I got all my licensing. I went back to school and got my class A and, and all of that stuff. Since then, I've done about 400 houses in Kansas City. What type of neighborhoods or markets should people be focusing on specifically if they're looking for areas where they want to be slightly above average neighborhoods, low mm -hmm. average crime, and they want to do affordable housing? But Kansas City is very block by block. So you might have one block that's great and all the houses have been remodeled on that block and the next block over there's people shooting at each other across the street i've heard about areas like Raytown, lee summit mm -hmm. overland park how do you feel about those neighborhoods are those decent neighborhoods above average what are your thoughts on on those areas um, well to start off overland park is where i live it's like the burbs. I actually really like Overland Park. If you Google Overland Park, it's always in the top few cities to live in in the entire US. There's lots of opportunity here. There's super low crime. It's fantastic. How does that compare with the Kansas side? The Kansas side is a lot smaller. I mean, like a, a third or a fourth of the population. So they can get through things a lot quicker. They have an actual community development center where you can go in and apply for your permits and you can physically talk to the inspectors and say, hey, I want to do this. What's the best way to do it? Or this is what I did. Can you tell me if it's right? Whatever. It's just a garage conversion and you want to convert that to a legal bedroom. What does that cost typically? It'd probably be five to 7,000, I would assume. If someone has a really uh, old bathroom, they want to bring it to slightly above average quality. What can people typically expect for those bathroom models? I think it's about $7,000 for a bathroom for me. And that's us coming in, gutting it down to the studs, putting everything back new, a nice tub with a shower and a new vanity and toilet and LVP flooring, you know, to kind of redo the whole thing. What about kitchen remodels? Smaller kitchens would normally start around 10,000. They can go up from there. I mean, I've done a kitchen, just a kitchen by itself. It was like 80,000. So just depends on what you want to do with that. Welcome to another episode of Affordable Housing and Real Estate Investing. Guys, today I'm so excited because one of our goals within the affordable housing and real estate investing community is to bring on folks from other markets so that you all can be a little bit less afraid about investing out of state in a different market. And today, Tyler Aiken came referred to me by a close friend of mine. And when I talked to him for the first time, I instantly knew within five minutes, and he can verify on the podcast today, within five minutes, I was like, this guy needs to come onto the podcast. From being a GC, being a Section 8 inspector, he brings a wealth of experience to us from the Kansas City market. So Tyler, welcome to the show, man. How are you doing today? All right. Hey, Tyler. Well, you shared a little bit about your story with me yesterday and I was so impressed and you really know what you're doing, man. So tell us a little bit about how did you even get into real estate and became a contractor? Well, I just kind of grew up in this world. That's what my dad did. My dad was a GC. And then later in his life, when being a GC was kind of too much to handle when he was getting close to retirement age, um, he went on to be a superintendent for new builds. And so as a little kid, I was just always on construction sites and just kind of learned the process from that. Now, you mentioned that you became a Section 8 home inspector. Like, how did that happen? So I was working for this company called AP Services. I would say, two, I think it was maybe 2011, 2012, something like that. And what they did was, uh, you know, affordable 
workforce housing, um, urban core housing. And I, when I had started working for them, I was just a maintenance guy. And I just, you know, kind of worked, worked through the ranks. And then eventually um, I made some contacts and just kind of went into the inspection side of things because it was easier at the time. And um, yeah, I mean, it's pretty, pretty simple story. So Tyler, you became a section eight inspector and that was just came from you being on a job. Tell us a little bit about section eight inspections, because sometimes folks think of it as a, like the boogie monster, like, Oh, they're going to fail me. And they're going to make my life really difficult. Tell us a little bit of what your job was. So you're, you're really looking for, you know, like a couple main things is, is the house safe? Is it, is it meeting your, your basic requirements and is it clean? That's some of the biggest things that they're looking for that they want to see is just those couple things. And so what we would find a lot of times is like outlets, just, it's something that's it's so simple and you would either have like the two prong outlets, which are the older style, or you would have, um, there's like a cheater way to do the outlets and on the outlets themselves, you can kind of jumper a wire. You're not supposed to, but it will appear to test properly. And you would see that a lot. And, and so that was like one of the things that we really focused on making sure that we would check for those types of things, you know, but, but most of the, most of the section eight stuff is just common sense kind of stuff. It's, it's really not so bad. That's really interesting. Cause I've heard of people sometimes for lack of better words, complain about section inspections because they would have very minor things like, oh, the insect screen was a little bit torn up, right? And they were like, okay, I I failed for that. And then all of a sudden I had to wait for a reschedule for the inspection. I took another two or three weeks in order for an inspector to come back out. So these were sort of the pain points that investors sometimes would talk about. And I understand that, but sometimes you're just backed up at the city. I usually, when you see, you know, and that is a requirement is, is like the screens on your windows. They have to be in good working condition. I I don't want to like do any shit talking here, but when inspectors are really giving you the business like that, it's usually because they've seen your name and your houses before and they were already having problems. We would take pictures. Like if, if a house was, everything was fine and you had one screen that was ripped and be like, fix it, send me a picture. I'll sign off on it. That's that. And I think that's so important when it comes to your reputation as an investor. For everyone that's listening to this right now, people aren't really out to get you. But if your reputation precedes you, that's when you can really get in trouble. Because as a Section 8 inspector, your job is just make sure like they're not slumlords, right? People have good places to live in. And well, we just talked about insect screen, Tyler. What else do you typically see people fail inspections for when it comes to like their Section 8 inspections? Another big one that I saw all the time was flues, like chimney, uh, you know, the furnace flue, where the the metal flue from the furnace actually goes into the chimney and out of the house. Those have to be sealed properly. Um, and that was another big one that we would just damn near every house, we would have to flag that. And that's really, it's a pretty dangerous thing because if if you're not getting that carbon monoxide out of the house from the furnace, it can really like, it can kill people. And that's, that's something that nobody wants in their house. So that's why <laughs> yeah. I always tell people, 
the inspections by the housing authority is typically what I call a good thing because they might find things that your typical realtor or your property manager even might never even notice in the first place because they're not right. on the site all the time. And if you get an inspection every year or two years, whatever cadence is in your jurisdiction, like this is actually helpful for you because you, you're not coming into a surprise after five, 10 years of a long-term rental tenant and you're you're finding all these issues. You're getting someone checking in on your property almost every year or two, which I think is truly a benefit uh, at the end of the day. Yeah. I mean, it helps you to, to keep your house in good shape. Um, you know, make sure that there's not issues. And, you know, something that a lot of people don't realize is those inspections go both ways. If the tenant is doing a bad job, you know, they don't take the trash out and it's piled up in the kitchen or, or whatever. There's uh, you know, recourse that section eight can take. Um, there's also several other, I don't know if these are national programs. There's, you know, uh, livable neighborhoods and um, several other programs in, in Kansas city specifically that uh, help with, you know, rental assistance as well. And so there's, there's repercussions if they're not taking care of your house, if they go in to inspect your house and someone's punched holes in the drywall or whatever, there's repercussions for that. Such a great point that it goes both ways. Thank you for highlighting that first and foremost, Howard, because I think one of the other big fights that I'm going against is dispelling the stigma, right? Sometimes folks, when they think about affordable housing, they think it's guns, drugs, and drama only. When in reality, you have some great people with some that are hardworking folks that are honest, that just wants to have a safe roof over their heads. Yeah, um, that's been my experience. I mean... In my years of owning houses, I've only had one get trashed. You know, you're, you're going to have that whether you're in, you know, low-end housing or not. You're eventually, if you have enough houses and you do it long enough, you're going to have a house that gets trashed. That's literally what I tell everybody, Tyler. I have a <laughs> couple of Airbnbs in my personal portfolio, and they are bachelorette themed. So they're specific girls trips for bachelorette trips. I fortunately, knock on wood, that I have not had somebody trash the home, but we hear about these Airbnb parties all the time. It's like that can happen for Airbnb properties. That can happen for your long-term rental residents. At the end right. of the day, it comes down to how well you screen your tenants. And then it also comes to whether or not you put out a product that is above average, that attracts a higher quality tenant that will probably have a little bit more dignity and, and responsibility if for your home. Yeah, if your houses are just, you know, a, a, a bit above the, the neighborhood, people realize that and they, they want to take care of it, you know. Um, I'm not saying that's the case always, but in my experience, that's what it's been. Um, I can go into, you know, a C or a D neighborhood and I spend an extra even 10000 on a house. And I put, you know, nice tile backsplashes and nice countertops and just a, a few little upgrades that really kind of make it stand out for that neighborhood. And the last time I had a, a, a tenant move out that house, I'm telling you, we had maybe two hours worth of work to do in there and send a cleaner in. And it was like back up for rent the next day. Wow. That is almost unheard of for a turn like that. Yeah. Oh my God. It, I mean, it was fantastic. I couldn't believe it. No, I'm not saying that that's going to happen all the time. I'm not saying that you're going to see that even most of the time, but when you're making that extra effort and you're, you know, doing your due diligence, you know, screening and, and whatnot, it, it's a pretty attainable goal, I guess you would say. 
Yeah, and I think this is one of the main reasons why I want to bring you onto the podcast is because you have that philosophy. You have the philosophy to go a little bit above average to make a home more homey and and serve that tenant with more dignity yeah. than others. And I think that's really important. It's all about the what we call customer experience, but they are they are our customers at the end of the day. Well, so- stay in houses. You know what I don't like to do is have vacant houses. So happy tenants stay in houses. So when I get a maintenance call. I'm there, you know, before the tenant even gets there, I'm there, you know, when I buy a house, we rerun all the electric, we rerun all the plumbing, we make sure that the roof is, you know, tip top, because that's the the couple main things that you're going to have problems with maintenance calls, whatever. And if you have things like that, that are aggravating your tenants, they're going to leave as soon as their lease is up, if not sooner. I've got some tenants that have been, you know, six, seven, eight years. Well, Tyler, you... You also work in the Kansas market and the Missouri market because Kansas City spreads both sides. Are, are there any big differences between the two housing authorities and how they go about their inspections or anything like oh, that? Oh, yeah. On the Kansas side, there's uh, like a city inspection that's basically like an occupancy inspection that you have to go through um, to be classified as a rental and like be able to rent your house. They don't do that at all on the Missouri side. And then, you know, Missouri, once you go through the city inspection in the, you know, Wyandotte County or, you know, city of Kansas City, Kansas, they, you kind of just are good to go. But Kansas City, Missouri, you don't have to do the city inspection, but you have to go through a little bit more. You have to jump through more hoops. It's more difficult to deal with the city on the Missouri side. So on the Kansas side, you go through a city inspection for the occupancy inspection. Is there still an inspection by the housing authority on the Section 8 side after that? There can be. Not always, but there can be. Okay. Okay. What might be the situations that you will or you might not get an additional inspection from the housing authority? If it's like brand new to being a rental, like if you just bought it and it's the first time it's, you know, Section 8 is seeing it coming through Uh, their system, probably going to get an inspection. Understand. Got it. So on the Missouri side, then when you, let's say like you're adding a bedroom or you converted a garage and extra bedroom, because that's one of the creative ways that we see people mm-hmm. try to get additional yeah. rents. Do you get a inspection from the building department for your certificate of occupancy first and then your section eight authority? Yeah. Got it. And how long does it typically take, you think, for like, let's say you're converting a garage or adding a bedroom. How long does that process typically take to get your certificate occupancy and then your Section 8 inspection kind of fully up and running? The, the city is a little bit difficult. Um, I'm not going to lie. It, you know, the Missouri, Kansas City, Missouri, the city is a little bit difficult. So um, sometimes you can call up there and say, hey, I need an inspection for XYZ. And they'll say, okay, we'll schedule you for next week. Sometimes they will say, well, we don't have anyone available in that area for a month. So I, you know, I, I've got, uh, friends that are, you know, electricians or plumbers or whatever, and they've, they've had permits open for like six months at a time, just waiting on someone to sign off. Six months. Wow. That's a long time. How does that compare with the Kansas side? Is it generally more fast? Kansas side is, is pretty quick. The Kansas side is a lot smaller. I mean, like uh, a third or a fourth of the population. Um, so they can get through things a lot quicker. They also have a building that's not, you know, at city hall. 
they have an actual like community development center where you can go in and apply for your permits and you can physically talk to the inspectors. They have like office hours and you can go in and talk to them and say, Hey, I want to do this. What's the best way to do it? Or this is what I did. Can you tell me if it's right? Whatever. Man, thanks for that inside knowledge. Cause then this, I think this really helps people set the right expectation because every day we're analyzing deals and you just heard from Tyler. Hey, sometimes if you're adding an extra garage or you're converting an extra bedroom and you pulling permits, you might want to have six months of holding costs for your property. Yeah. That gets into, you should be vetting your contractors because if your contractor has a good relationship with the city, they can usually make that happen quite a bit faster. And that's why I brought you on to the podcast. Tyler. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tyler, let, let's just give people a little bit more background. Like how many renovations have you done in Kansas City now? And, you know, wh what type of renovations do you guys typically do? do? You guys typically do vacant homes, remote occupied homes. Tell us a little bit about how many rehabs have you done? Roughly. I, I know it's easy to lose count when you do so many. Since uh, about 2018 is when I... Um, is when I started Great Plains. I was doing this exact kind of work, but um, I was doing it as like guerrilla warfare. I didn't have any licensing. You know, I was just doing the work, you know. Um, in 2018, I decided to go legit and I got all my licensing. I went back to school and got my class A and, and all of that stuff. Um, since then, uh, I've done about 400 houses in Kansas City. Um, some of those are small scopes. They might be, you know, five or $7,000, something like that. Um, some of them are huge where we're doing $150,000, $170,000 full gut and remodel. A huge difference there. We do a lot of rent turns as well. Um, there's a few property management companies that we work with that we do rent turns for, you know, they always have something going on. It sounds like you work across the spectrum of your, your scope is huge. Do you yeah. also work with like section eight inspections or section eight investors that also requires some of your help or your team's help with section eight inspections? Yeah. I, you know, the management companies are usually kind of the middleman between me and the investors. Investors don't typically have a way to contact me directly. They don't, you know, if they know somebody or they get my phone number or something, they'll contact me, no problem. But usually it's the investors are going to their management company and, the, and then the management company is coming to me saying, hey, we need to get this house Section 8 ready or we need to get this house, you know, livable neighborhoods or, or whatever. So, Got it. And do you typically have like a handyman from your team that is at the property when the inspection is going on usually? Or you you guys have a pretty good checklist of, hey, let's get all this stuff ready and we know it's going to be good when inspecting. I typically, unless there's something like that gets double booked or something, I like to go to the inspections myself. That way I know exactly what the inspector wants. There's no confusion. And I can talk to the inspector. Most of the time I've seen them before. They know me. And so I can say, hey, can we just, if we don't pass, I can, you know, can we just knock these couple things out? I'll shoot you a couple pictures and you sign off on it later today. That way we're not having to wait for them to come back out. Even if they're, you know, if there is a wait or whatever, we can just get it handled all in the same day. Yes. And this is why I brought you on the podcast, because this is exactly what you guys want as part of your all-star team. And I tell people this all the time. You can be the best analyzer in the world about deals, but if you do not have a team that you trust, that it's on the ground with a property manager, realtor, and a contractor or handyman sometimes, you're not 
your chances of you succeeding is going to be a lot lower versus if you had the all-star team. And that's this is what the advice I've been giving so many folks. And I am just feeling overjoyed right now that you're on this podcast right now. Because like everything <laughs> that you're saying is like, this is how you are supposed to do things. You are supposed to have someone, an all-star like Tyler, at your inspections, going through and talking to an inspector because this way you save yourself three, four weeks of time from another reschedule if you failed. Right. Well... Tyler, you know this market so well, having done over 400 rehabs. Can you give a little bit of insight to the audience right now? What type of neighborhoods or markets should people be focusing on, specifically if they're looking for areas where they want to be slightly above average neighborhoods, below mm -hmm. average crime, and they want to do affordable housing, but they want to be in neighborhoods where people actually want to stay for a long time? That's a hard one. Um, the reason that's difficult is because Kansas City is very block by block. So you might have one block that's great and all the houses have been remodeled on that block. And the next block over, there's people shooting at each other across the street, you know? So it, it's very block by block. You just have to do your research and it's more about... I, I know that a lot of these investors are out of state and they're not going to be able to go and drive the neighborhoods, but if they have someone that knows what they're doing, if they have a realtor um, that knows what they're doing, that realtor can go drive around and say, oh yeah, like this is super solid. All the houses on this block have been remodeled or, hey, I know the comps say that this one's good, but maybe that's not the right one. That's really interesting. Do you have any advice for people that are out of state, but they want to say, hey, I know it's block by block. What should they be looking for? Let's say they're on Google Street View or something like that, and they're uh -huh. trying to do like a virtual drive-by. What kind of signs do you typically see that are off streets that are run down? I was looking at a house a while back, and I thought for sure I had you know, found a winner in this house. And I was just, you know, like looking around on the internet and I said, well, I'm just going to hit the, the street view and see what I see. And on the street view, there was like four cop cars in front of it, like on the street view. It was like, eh, maybe not. Well, I'm not sure if people are going to get that lucky and they see four cop cars right. on, a, on a street. View. But hey, if, that, that, if that's not a sign for you to avoid that street, I don't know what it is. Right. But I mean, you can look and see, you know, a lot of these houses were built in the early 1900s. So if they haven't been maintained, it's easy to see. On the other side of that, you know, if you're seeing houses that have been freshly painted and have new siding and new windows and, you know, that you can be pretty sure that there's an investor in that neighborhood or someone's at least taking, taking pride in where they're at. And that's probably a pretty good place to be. No, that's really good to know. Uh, I think we, when I've done some research in the past, I've heard about areas like Raytown, Lee Summit, mm -hmm. Overland Park. How do you feel about those neighborhoods? Are those decent neighborhoods above average? What are your thoughts on on those areas? Oh, um, well, to start off, Overland Park is is where I live. It's like the burbs. You know, I, I actually really like Overland Park. If you Google Overland Park, it's always in the top few cities to live in in the entire U.S. There's lots of opportunity here. There's super low crime. It's fantastic. Lee Summit, same kind of deal. It's the burbs. It's, you know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes outside of the city and not as low, but pretty low crime. 
all the houses were built, you know, in the last like 20 ish years, you know, Raytown's it, it is a little bit in closer to the city. So it's uh, not as much the burbs. I mean, it's still kind of the burbs. Well, what other markets or neighborhoods would there be that you might recommend? And what type of property should people typically look for? Uh, always, you should be looking for at least a 3-1. That's kind of the sweet spot if you're going to be, you know, Section 8 or any of the other programs. Three, uh, minimum 3-1, 3-2 if you can. Um, or a 2-1 that's over about 1,000 feet, 1,100 feet, because you can find a way to put another bedroom in that. But Northeast is always popping that's a really good area to be in um the east side is is where almost all of my houses are and it's getting gentrified um it's moving pretty quickly you know when i started buying houses on the east side i was buying i bought a duplex uh for six thousand dollars at one point maybe 2011 2010 something like that so when I moved to Kansas City, it's 2008, 2009, something like that. And um, I bought a house on Cleveland, which is one of the main streets in Kansas City. And then the house um, next to me went up for sale. Um, I ended up buying it for 8500 And then, it, you know, everyone was like way you know all the investors all the people that i was working for they're like what are you doing you're never gonna get your money back out of these houses i was like it'll come back around and lo and behold here we are you know houses on the east side it started having people investing over there and now they're going up wow well let's be a little bit more specific when you say northeast what does that mean now we talk about north kansas city what does that Northeast is typically considered east, yeah, east of Troost and north of St. John Avenue. Mm. A little corner. It's called Historic Northeast. Got it, got it. Well, and then for the east side, how east are we talking about? What what sort of sections should we be looking for when you talk when you say east? Basically Westport or um Troost all the way to Independence. Wow. So guys, don't say we didn't provide any value for you. This is as <laughs> as local of local knowledge you can get from a contractor that sees all the activity that's happening in the Kansas City market. And he just gave you a little target area to start looking at. So you'd be a little bit more comfortable and reach out to Tyler whenever you need a job. <laughs> you guys better not be coming into that area and making my house prices. <laughs> so I can't buy houses in there anymore. <laughs> well, then you guys are gonna have to look for ways to partner with Tyler. That's that's what I always <laughs> tell people, right? And well, Tyler, you have so much renovation experience. And I man, I remember when I was fresh and brand new to real estate, and one of the biggest problems that I had was being afraid of getting ripped off by contractors or not knowing anything about what a rehab might even cost. So would you be okay if we went through some general rehabs and what type of jobs might it take and how much they cost? Would you be okay if we went through some yeah, of course. hours like that? So let's just talk about it. We talked about HVAC electric panels. Tell us about like what is a typical HVAC replacement might run an investor? As long as it's, you know, like a pretty easy replacement where we're just pulling the old one out and we can order a new one the same size and slap it back in. If you're just doing the furnace, 
or are you wanting to do the whole system? You think? Well, let's let's go through both. Let's talk about the just the furnace and just the furnace. You'd probably be looking in uh, three thousand thirty five hundred something like that. Um, full system, the the line set, the condenser, and the furnace. Um, you'd probably be looking five thousand fifty five hundred something like that. And does that include duct work at the same time too? If it needed like some, you know, a small amount of duct work, that probably wouldn't be a big deal. Now I have seen where people went in to like steal, they break in and they steal the furnace and they just kind of rip everything out. We would, but not for that price, you know, wouldn't come back in and redo all of the duct work and all of that for five grand. It's just not going to happen. Wow, that's crazy. Maybe a side question here is, do you guys do anything or any preventative measures to try to thwart theft of these things? Like, do you guys lock up the HVAC condenser? Yeah, of course. All of that stuff, standard procedure. Um, we always put those, um, they're kind of like hooks that go on the back doors with a two by four across them so that it like anchors to the frame of the house, you know? Um, so you can't just kick in the back door. We put the cages on all the ACs, pretty standard procedure stuff. And then um, we use a company, it's a local Kansas City company that is fantastic. And um, I'm sure you could probably get them to come on the podcast. Um, they're called Leasiest. And they are, I, I could not say enough good stuff about them. What they do is for like 400 bucks, they come in. They uh, change the lock on your front door to one of their locks that has a timed code and they put cameras up in the house. And so then they take care of all the marketing and it, that way you're not hiring a realtor to rent your house. They take care of all the marketing. They put it up on Google and apartment finder and wherever. And then if someone wants to rent your house, they say, you know, they, they can email in, they get a code. The code is good for 30 minutes. After 30 minutes, the cameras will say, hey, your time's up. Get out. If you don't, we're going to call the cops. Um, which is, And then once the house gets rented, they basically take their 400 bucks out of the deposit and hand you a signed lease with the difference. It wow, is fantastic. That is, that is convenient. That's really oh, man. cool. I've but never heard of that. I like to use them as soon as my houses are are even close to being rent ready. I use them as a security as well because then there's cameras in the house. And if they sense motion when there's not supposed to be, it just automatically calls the cops. Wow. That is such a relief. I'm so glad that's available. Well, yeah. thank you for, for suggesting that because I'm, I'm sure the audience is going to take that into consideration now. Yeah. As, as we think about other renovations, right? What about electric panel replacements? How much does it typically cost? And when do you actually suggest people replace those panels? So there's some panels that you replace if you see them in the house automatically. There's, I think one of them might be Federal Pacific, but there's, there's a few of them that were known to be fire starters. And I don't know if this is how it is everywhere else, but in Kansas City, it is actually like a code violation to have those panels. And so you just, they go. Every time you see one, they go. Because if they have it there, chances are you're going to fail the section eight inspection anyways, right? You're going to fail the inspection. You're also, yeah, you, you're probably not going to be able to get insurance. Yeah. So guys, get that taken care of right away, please. 
Yeah. But as far as an electric panel, if it's a small house and it's an easy swap, it could be as low as like 1500 bucks. It might be as high as maybe like 3500 um, depending on how complicated it is and exactly what all goes into it. Got it. That's super helpful. And then one of the ways we talked about earlier was converting garages into additional bedrooms or huh? trying to figure out how to add additional bedroom within existing square footage. What does that project typically run, especially if you have to go pull permits and get into the tax record? Right. Appreciation. It, again, that's a loaded question. Are we adding on to the back of the house and we have to pour a foundation? That's obviously a lot more than if we're converting a garage, you know? Um, it could be anywhere between, you know, four or 5,000 up to 10 or 15, even, um, just depending on what has to be done. That's actually a lot lower than I expected. I usually budget about 20 grand sometimes. Cause sometimes people were like, Hey, well, this is probably a different market. I was in Vegas when I was getting quotes for garage conversions. Cause they're like, Hey, certain garages after a certain year, depending on whether or not you got to put in footings, et cetera, it's gotta be a different right different costs. So if it's existing square footage, just a garage conversion, what does that typically run you? It'd probably be five to 7,000, I would assume. That's good to if know. If it's just basic, you know. And then if you just refrain, if you find like an office in the house and you want to convert that to a legal bedroom, what does that cost typically? If the square footage meets requirements, the ceiling height meets requirements, um, you've got egress, so you've got a window, you know, all of the requirements are met. It really shouldn't be that big of a deal. You need a closet and a door at that point. So it's not a big deal at all. Except you just got to still put a permit at that point in time, right? Yeah. Okay. So that's not too bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, what about bathroom remodels? Like if someone has a really uh, old bathroom, they want to bring it to slightly above average quality. What is that to... What can people typically expect for those bathroom models? Usually, I think kind of the rule of thumb um, is about $7,000 for a bathroom for me. Um, and that's us coming in, gutting it down to the studs, um, and then putting everything back new. And that would be like a, a nice, you know, tub with a shower and a new vanity and toilet and LVP flooring and, you know, kind of redo the whole thing. Man, that makes me feel so much better because I've been underwriting about eight grand. So, all right, you making me feel good about this one, dude. <laughs> uh, what about kitchen remodels? How much do those typically cost? Again, for the slightly above average, uh, kind of our smaller kitchens would normally start around ten thousand. Um, they can go up from there. I mean, I've done a kitchen, just a kitchen by itself. It was like eighty thousand. So, um. It just depends on what you want to do with that. Yeah. I'm thinking more for these like three, one properties where right. like thousand, fifteen hundred square feet, you got a, you know, mid-sized kitchen roughly. And yeah, would you say that's close to like 10, 15. I'm assuming. Yeah. That you would appliances? be between 10 and you would be with 10 and 15. I would feel real good about that. Got it. <laughs> and in Kansas city or Kansas or the Missouri side, do they require you to provide appliances for D section eight rentals. What does that requirement typically look like? It, it depends on what's what's in the lease is. So if it's there, if it's in the lease, you have to provide it and maintain it. Um, you can say, you know, no appliances or no, 
you know, sometimes people will own their own fridge or whatever. And so they'll, they'll say, I don't, I don't want the fridge and you can take that out specifically or, you know, any combination of those. Mm. I mean, do you have any wisdom to impart on the audience? Like should they provide certain appliances and avoid other appliances? Like the only ones that I don't do is washer and dryer Mm. because they're just, they're always going to break. They're going to leak. They're going to cause problems. Um, so I make tenants bring their own washer and dryer. Other than that, I always provide all of the all of the appliances. Um, I have a pretty good connection with a, a local store here that um, if something breaks, I buy all of my appliances from them for all of my houses and I have for a long time. So if something breaks, I take it back to them. They'll just swap me out a new one and fix that one. And then the next time, something breaks or whatever they give me the one that they fixed and we just kind of keep them rotating man that is that is beautiful to hear yeah that's your number one fear as an investor you're like okay if i'm going to provide those utilities man what happens if the fridge goes out what happens if this person doesn't know how to take care of it and again i kind of go back to well if you attract better residents chances are they're going to take better care of your stuff and if you treat them you're inevitably there's no way around it Uh, appliances Mm -hmm. break and that's just part of it but I feel like, you know, as an investor, you should be able to plan for these things. You don't know when they're going to happen, um, but you should be able to plan for these things when they do happen. So it's not like, oh, I have to, I don't know, take out a loan to buy a fridge. A fridge is not that expensive. <laughs> I completely agree with you, man. Um, well, Tyler, we're getting to a point in this podcast where this is the question I ask, honestly, everybody in. Tell why do you think affordable housing, particularly the lack of supply of affordable housing, is so hard to solve for? You can't build new housing. You typically can't. I'm not saying it can't be done, but typically you can't build new housing. And everyone's always trying to, of course, maximize their profits. And so that kind of kills off the affordable side of things a lot of times. I would agree with that. It's always a push whole relationship when it comes to creating enough supply to satisfy the demand. But then we're not naive. We know that sometimes investors need to make a return on their investment. And sometimes it's a lot more difficult (laughs) to just say it (laughs) versus do it. Well, Tyler, you have been tremendously helpful on this podcast, man. And, And first and foremost, I want to thank you so much for what you do, man. Without people like you, I would have never had the home I grew up in. So sincerely, thank you so much for being an advocate for affordable housing. Thank you so much for going above and beyond and providing a great quality home to people because I just think about it, man. If I never had the home I grew up in, I would have never became the person I am today. And I would never had the privilege to meet someone like you that I can bring forward to our community and help people feel a little bit less afraid about investing in affordable housing when they got a teammate like you on their side. Well, I appreciate that. Thanks. All right, Tyler. If people want to reach out to you or learn more about you, how can they get in touch with you and how can they work with you? Easiest way. I'm I'm old school. Just give me a call. <clears throat> All right. Would you be okay with Gail your phone number or is there yeah. an email that we, we you would prefer us to just email you? Because I don't want your phone getting blown up because it might get blown up. <laughs> this phone never stops ringing. It, it it's fine. Call call away. I will answer all the questions. All right, Tyler. What's your phone number, man? 
816-739-7350. All right. Tyler, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much. And I can't wait to do a deal with you, man. I want to do a deal with you. Yeah. I want to talk through the rehab. I want to talk about it on a podcast and just highlight to folks like, hey, this is the same thing I went through myself with Tyler. And I think this would be really cool for us to kind of document that journey with you. Yeah, let's do it. All right. Thank you, Tyler, so much for coming on. And we'll be back soon.